Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street every day, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences and accomplishments are, or how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. It's an understatement to say this month's conversation tells an unusual story of lifetime adventure, both physical and spiritual. You're about to meet a fascinating man. Meet Dr. Wayne Anderson. Dr. Wayne Anderson, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, So may I call you Wayne? You may call me Wayne, yes. If I... Do you know if I do any volunteer work or anything? Then, then I use the title. So, so we can we can assume you're a retired physician. A retired physician, absolutely. Thirty five years practicing in uh, East San Diego County, uh, most of it with uh, Scripps Clinic and in family medicine. Well, one thing that I I'm fairly certain of is the title retired physician just touches only a fragment of your life. Uh, certainly, um, you know, currently and, and in the past, um, you know, I do remain pretty active. Um, when I went into retirement, I decided that I would approach it the way I did anything else and created an organized flow sheet and decided, well, you know, I want to keep my mind active. I want to keep physically active. I want to um, pursue a spiritual practice. I want to try to give back a little bit. Um, And so I've, you know, to that end, um, I've been able to keep, uh, you know, pretty busy and pretty engaged. Well, your life's adventures really began at a very young age, didn't they? They certainly did. Um, I, when I was really young, and I don't have a lot of memories from that, you know, um, we kind of moved from place to place where my dad pursued his engineering um, career. He was um, the first in the family to ever uh, go to college and, and become an engineer. And uh, he worked for DuPont and GE and several other com- companies as we moved around. Um ended up in working for a small plastics company um, in Auburn, New York. And from there, the major adventure of the life um, ensued. So you were nine years old. Yes. Your mother was really the driving force behind a major move. You, You moved to islands in the Indian Ocean, didn't you? We certainly did. I mean, my mom was always kind of a spiritual teacher and um, she she dabbled in everything from speaking in tongues and evangelical to crystal healing and and whatever and for her this was kind of a spiritual journey and I think that um, she kind of saw the family um, drifting apart and that this was a way to bring everybody together so she read this article um, called uh, live for a dollar a day in paradise it was just a little article and um, it directed her to go to the uh, Seychelles Islands, which is off the coast of Madagascar. I think the biggest island is 15 miles by two miles. Um, and so we set off on ocean liners and ended up there and spent seven months because 
you had to spend seven months because there's only one boat in and out of the Seychelles from what was then Bombay, India. Um, we were the only tourists on the islands, the only Americans on the islands. There was a hotel, so we re basically rented the entire hotel, which I, I think was 15 or, or 20 rooms, um, and uh, it cost $40 a month, um, included a maid and a cook, just to kind of give you an idea back then. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we spent seven months there. Uh, my mom became um, close friends, as we did with an Episcopal priest who led her on that part of her, um, her spiritual journey. My parents taught me the whole time. The New York uh, school system was um, uh, such that they allowed us to take the books and my folks would teach us. And so we cruised into England. We'd learned all about English history. And when we went to India, we learned about Indian history. And then in the Seychelles, you know, we would learn about you know, biology and astronomy and all sorts of different things. And when I was in um, New York, I was a B and C student, ended up um, in California um, and became an A student um, just on the basis of my parents teaching me for that year. So they really didn't intend that to be a permanent move? No, it was, it was a kind of a reset. And it's pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, my dad was a depression era um, child and he talked about um, picking peas for five cents an hour in the fields to earn enough money to go to college. And he was really driven, um, but they decided that this was more important for the family, um, basically sold everything, um, cashed out everything. And on the way back, we got back as far as Australia before we ran totally out of money, had yeah. to borrow money from the relatives to get back to California. Um, and uh, we stayed in California because we couldn't afford to go back to the East Coast. And he found a job um, uh, working for a, a kind of a beaten down plastics company that extruded um, uh, sprinkler system and sewer system tubing and turned it into one of the larger producers of medical IV tubing on the West Coast. So it's quite, a, quite an amazing um, story, especially, you know, in the context of of, you know, how my parents grew up. Well, you said that the move to the Seychelles really set the tone for the rest of your life. How so? Well, I think, I th I think you basically have to re-examine everything when, you know, you're uprooted, you're in these, these islands all by yourself, you think about other things, your world automatically expands um, on the Seychelles. There was nobody there who looked like me or talked like me. Um, you get kind of a more global um, uh, outlook, if it were. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for my mom, it was it was a spiritual thing. I became, uh, you know, confirmed in the Episcopal Church, so I kind of followed along a little bit so it was the you know kind of the beginning of of thinking about issues and things beyond myself um 
and just you know from a practical standpoint um just that year you know with one-on-one teaching from my parents who were both very you know um brilliant in their own way um just jump-started me from being really an average student to um you know, to, to uh, an above average student. Was that an additional motivation factor that caused that, you think? I don't know. I mean, it was a, you know, you get a different outlook. I mean, when, you know, when you're, when you're sailing on a ship and, you know, and you go up the captain and he shows you, you know, the compasses and the altimeters and everything, things kind of settle in and you're sitting out there looking at the stars and you look at things differently and, and you're in a castle in England uh, or, you know, Taj Mahal and, and all of a sudden things become more alive and you're more interested. And the reality is that we, you know, we didn't spend more than a couple hours a day in, in any formal teaching, but things just, you know, meant so much more and seemed so much more real. Wow, that's an amazing experience. It, it really was. It, it was it was pretty pretty crazy. Um, I think the station. Well, I know because um, a couple years ago, um, my kids grew up hearing all these tales of the Seychelles and everything, and so we took them back. Um, my son actually became engaged on one of the beaches that I ran around as a nine-year-old child and um, it's changed a lot um, uh, there's some very ritzy hotels um, there's some amazing uh, palaces built by some of the Russian oligarchs that's one of the places now that they like to go actually is the is the Seychelles so things have changed a lot um, what what language is spoken there? They speak a, a Creole. Um, I would guess it would be similar to um, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, it's a mix of French and I think Swahili, some other um, African um, dialects. Um, the the French originally settled the area, brought in slaves as you know, to, to work some small plantations. And then during one of the wars, the British took it over. Um, so when we were there, it was actually a, a British protectorate and had a British governor. Um, and then it later became um, independent, um, as most of the African nations have. So what was your transition back to school in California like? It was it was pretty you know it was pretty smooth um, you know growing up um, you know we moved from place to place so I never really um, developed a lot of close friendships and so you know I was just starting over again um, I kind of kind of had an interesting interesting educational experience so when I came back um, I was in. I believe it was a fifth grade. So I was in the um, fifth and sixth grade in an elementary school. And then when I went to middle school, it was at a time when they were doing um, the busing for integration program. And so mm-hmm. I lived in a you know, 
you know, working class, but very white suburb, but was bust into Pacoima, which is more of a, it's very similar to Compton in LA. Um, at the time, it was primarily African-American, but gradually trans, uh, transitioning to Hispanic. So um, spent most of the time there again, being um, the minority. Mm -hmm. So how did you discover your calling in medicine? It, it, it's like, I'm sure, well, not everybody. My son kind of knew that he always wanted to become um, a doctor. Uh, my, um, my life path uh, was to become an engineer like my father and take over his business. Um, the subjects that I was best at um, in secondary school were math and science. And so I enrolled at um, uh, University of California at Irvine um, as an engineering major. Found out that I just, you know, I just didn't enjoy it. I mean, I could grind out, you know, calculus and differential equations, but just, you know, didn't really enjoy it. Um, and I had a roommate who was um, a biology major. And I said, biology sounds great. You know, life sciences. Um, uh, you know, I did a little scuba diving so I could become a marine biologist. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. And then the same roommate happened to work at a um, laboratory, uh, medical laboratory. And so, you know, I got kind of a part-time job at the medical laboratory and did some research on heart lung bypass and hematologic things and just kind of fell in love with medicine and ended up um, at the last minute kind of applying to med school was fortunate enough to get into UCLA and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So at what stage in med school do doctors select their specialties? Um, you, you can at any, you know, at any stage. I mean, there are some people that I knew that came in, um, said, you know, I you know, always wanted to be an ophthalmologist or always wanted to be a cardiologist. I think the most common thing is that, you know, by the third year, third out of fourth year, you know, you develop an interest. I kind of liked everything um, and, uh, you know, also um, felt that, you know, a lot of the specialists would disagree with me, but, um, and I still feel this way that really the most difficult part of medicine and the part of medicine that the smartest people should go into is primary care because you're dealing with an, you know, an undifferentiated issue that requires a lot of skill to know who is coming in with fatigue and have life intervention. I mean, has life stresses, who has depression and who may have cancer or diabetes or anemia. So you do, you, you have to really think through all these issues. Whereas as you go up the specialty ladder, it really becomes more and more and more cookbook. I mean, if you go to a, you know, specific, you know, an oncologist who, spe who uh, specializes in this, that's, ex 
there's a cookbook. I mean, and everybody does the same thing. The diagnosis has already been made. Or if you send somebody, um, you know, to, um, you know, a sub-subspecialist, the diagnosis has been made and they just basically plug into a protocol. So I always felt that that the, the best and the brightest should go into primary care. And I think there are a lot of people in, you know, you know my age group who um, had that kind of feeling and that kind of idealism. And um, unfortunately, it's, it's not carried through. I think that we don't see that as much anymore. Um, the, the smarter people go into, um, you know, specialties and subspecialties and, um, and, you know, a lot of the people who are filling the primary care roles now are, um, you know, foreign medical graduates or, you know, people um, who aren't near the top of their class. So, so a lot of the specialists, then it, it sounds as though uh, financial motivation is is a, a pretty strong element to that choice. It is, it is, and I think one of the things that um, is reinforcing that, um, you know, I hired a, a family physician while I was working at at the clinic. And she came in with, I don't know, $300,000 in debt. And that $300,000 in debt is, you know, a lot more costly. I mean, it takes forever to pay off if you're making a quarter of what, you know, a subspecialist makes. Uh, My son will start right out of education making twice, you know, my highest salary. So... Obviously, uh, financial ambition was not what motivated you. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. Um, and if you, you know, and if you really look at, um, you know, the studies on happiness and happiness literature, um, uh, you know, you reach a certain income level and above that, it doesn't generate any more happiness or satisfaction. Um, so, so I, I, it was, it was certainly the right decision. Interestingly enough, uh, next month, um, I'm going to get together for the 40th reunion of my, um, family practice residency group at Santa Monica hospital. So there are eight of us and six of us are going to get together. Um, just kind of, relive our uh, practices. I think everybody is retired except for one woman who practices in a small town in um, Arizona and continues to practice. That's a pretty intense time internship and residency, isn't it? It's very intense. Absolutely. Um, You know, we were, um, you know, at Santa Monica Hospital, we were really the only ones who um, uh, only interns and residents at the hospital. So we basically did everything. We manned the ER and did a lot of deliveries and OB and assisted on all the surgeries and did work in the ICUs. So it was, it was pretty intense. Um, and there's a lot of bonding that goes on, um, you know, with that group. And so I'm, you know, excited to get together with everybody and share our experiences and kind of 
relive the glory days. <laughs> you know, I hear that that uh, residency involves something like eighty-hour work weeks. Um, it does. It it does. In fact, um, uh, and and in fact, still does. Um, my son um, started in an era where they created a law that you could only work 80 hours uh, maximum, um, but they get around it. And he works, you know, he works way over 80 hours, sometimes up to 100 hours a week wow. um, still. So and, and I don't think it's the best. It's the best system, but, you know. Why do they it's do this, that? Why do, why do they do such long hours? Well, the what they tell you is that you have to be around all the time in order to see everything that you need to see. Um, I think, in, in you know, the reality is that you're you're actually cheap labor, and and also you insulate um, some of the more senior doctors from having to come in. So there are a lot of there are a lot of a lot of reasons for it. It seems like fatigue would impact quality of care. Um, it does. <laughs> it does. Um, and you try to do the best you can. And I, I think it's really a suboptimal system. And again, they keep trying to change it. And they did create that one regulation limiting it to 40 hours, to 80 hours. But um, they get around that because even though you're, you, you, know, you have to be there physically 80 hours, you still have to do all of your charting and records and all of those things. Yeah. How long is residency? So it, you know, it, it varies for um, pediatrics, internal medicine and family medicine is three years. So that's the minimum um, uh, residency. Now, you know, like my son, uh, he did three years in internal medicine actually then did a chief residency year, which is a fourth year. And then he went in and did three years of cardiology um, and then did an extra year of interventional cardiology. So, you know, it depends on the specialty, but everybody does at least three years after four years of, of uh, med school. And after all that, do you then start a job search or are you recruited? Do you, how do you get started in practice? You know, you, you do a, um, uh, you can, you can hire somebody to, you know, a headhunter. Um, you could look at ads. I just looked at, you know, they have listings as to who's looking for somebody. And I looked at a combination of, you know, I kind of wanted to live in San Diego and then looked for the jobs that were available and then just interviewed and, um, um, picked one in East San Diego County. So you started out with uh, Lemon Grove Family Medicine. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it has an interesting history. Um, most of the doctors that I joined um, were, you know, older docs and um, they had formed what was the first uh, group practice in San Diego was at a time when group practices were kind of taboo. Um, people, um, you know, were expected to, you know, just hang a shingle and, and work on their own. But they started a group practice and they would tell me stories about, you know, driving on 
you know, dirt roads to deliver babies at home and tonsillectomies mm. on tables and everything. So that you know, that was kind of the, the the history of that group. And then after um, two years, uh, Scripps Clinic decided that they needed um, an outpost in East County. And so um, we became um, affiliated with Scripps Clinic, which is where I worked most, most of my career for. And uh, so how did your career with Scripps progress? Um, very well. Um, uh, you, you know, it's, it was a good, long, and for the most part, happy career. Um, I, uh, um, pretty much always maintained a full-time clinical practice, but, um, initially, um, they asked me to be the director of, um, the site in Rancho San Diego, and then later, uh, the site in Rancho in, uh, Santee. Um, so I was the, the medical director there and, um, also became the uh, chairman of family practice for Scripps Clinic. Yeah. So along the way, you you nurtured some special interests in alternative and complementary medicine. Those are mostly associated with Oriental medicine, are they not? Um, you know, some some are, but uh, mostly, uh, I would say probably most of them um, have some roots in. Um, uh, China, um, some in India. Um, yeah, it was it, it, it was an interest um, that I had. Um, uh, I think kind of before a lot of people had that interest, and um, you know, initially researched uh, you know various herbs and supplements, um, which I must admit most of them haven't turned out to be as as helpful as, as we would hope, but some, some are still useful. Um, moved into um, uh, uh, mindfulness uh, meditation, um, which I still think is probably the most helpful um, of the alternative medicines for, uh, for health, other than maybe exercise, which is, is, is mainstream. And I've taught a lot about um Taught, tried to teach physicians how to write an exercise prescription for their patients and evaluate and, and talk about the benefits of, of um, exercise. So those were kind of some of the, the special interests that I had and some of the things that I um, uh, talked about at different conferences. Did your roles with an established healthcare system allow you the freedom to include your special interests into your practice? Yeah, they did. I mean, you know, Scripps was, was, was very, very open. Um, you know, um, the, the types of things that I talked to, you know, talked about were scientifically, um, you know, reviewed um, and, uh, uh, you know, published in different, articles and I tried to get as much mainstream um, information as possible. Um, so you know, I approached it from a you know a scientific um, uh, method. Mm -hmm. So 35 years in medical profession and you retired. But I'm, I gotta say, your retired life looks more active than most people's work lives. <laughs> no, no, I don't. 
I don't know about that. I mean, um, you know, I try to, I, you know, I try to keep a, keep a good balance. I can honestly say that most of the time when I'm doing something, it's, there's really nothing else that I would rather be doing. So even though, you know, I try to keep um, busy and active, it's doing things that I enjoy and things that I know are helpful for my health, um, my mental health, physical health, spiritual health. It's very nice, you know, at this stage of life to be able to spend time, um, you know, learning about things and exploring things that you, know, you didn't have a, you know, an opportunity to do, um, you know, in the, you know, in the past, um, you know, when, especially when you're on a, an engineering or pre-medical track, I mean, you know, what you study and what you learn is pretty scripted. Um, you don't have a lot of freedom. And so now it's, it's, it's been really nice to be able to, you know, take a lot of online courses in different areas of interest and, um, um, read a lot of different things and, um, continue to learn and, and grow as a person. Those were really wonderful distinctions that you gave us about what it means to be a family, family physician. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you base, you, you do become part of somebody's family. You become an important part, um, you know, and a, and a, trusted source, not only of information, but sometimes of comfort um, to people going through, you know, various difficulties, um, you know, in life. Um, it's, uh, it, it, it was, it was an amazing privilege, you know, to have people um, confide in you and, um and let you into their their lives and their stories, um, and you know, that's a part of it that I, I miss still a lot. You serve on the board of directors of the Family Health Centers of San Diego and on the La Mesa Citizens Homeless Task Force. Now, what's involved in those two uh, activities? Well, the the um, Citizens Task Force. Um, we finished our um, our uh, well. What should I say? Required um, uh, investigation and recommendations, and we've um, we developed a home outreach program. So we have a a van that has mental health people, addiction and recovery people. Um, you know, placement, social workers, some you know, combinate people with combination of those skills, and that van now goes out. Um, whenever anybody calls in about somebody who's homeless, rather than sending the police, we have our little van that's been been coming out. So, you know, my active role on that task force is gone. I still do network with some of the people who are on the. Um, task force and the chairwoman and, and review things, but that um, the active role has ceased. The family health centers is a little bit more it is continuing is an ongoing thing. Um, I started, I think it's been 15 years ago, 
when I decided that um, I no longer wanted to do administrative work at Scripps Clinic. And I stepped down as a chairman of the department and as a medical director to just pursue only full-time clinical practice. Um, you know, I wanted to, you know, use some of the skills that I'd gained in doing that for 15 years. Um, and so I um, joined the board of uh, family health centers back then and continue to be active um, with them. Um, I'm now on the, their executive committee. Um, you know, we meet um, regularly. Um, we have our monthly meetings and then subcommittee meetings. Um, I'm on the uh, committee. I'm the chairman of the committee that, that you know, ultimately reviews and credentials all of the, the new hires and we review and recredential all of our um, staff every two years. So that, you know, that requires, you know, some, some ongoing work. Um, during the pandemic, I um, uh, helped them administer vaccinations and do screenings prior to, to vaccinations for them. So it, it's a great organization uh, and I'm very proud to be part of it. Um, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, and the highest quality uh, community clinics um, in the United States. Mm. And uh, we provide care um, for people that uh, can't receive care for financial reasons and other reasons at Scripps, Kaiser, and Sharp, which are the big three. Um, so it's, it's, it's a great organization and something that you know, I, I'll continue to be active in. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, it's a it's it's pretty amazing. Um, it's expanded tremendously in the fifteen years that I've been there. Um, I believe we we crossed the million visit mark. Oh. Um, you know, in one year, um, we have an amazing um, you know, outreach program, needle exchange program. We've been focusing on um, uh, helping, you know, healthcare and integration of a lot of the different refugee groups that have, have come through. Um, we developed a residency program actually in, um, in family medicine. And a lot of the residents um, continue to stay with family health centers because uh, it's really difficult now to recruit family physicians. Nobody really wants to go into it for some of the reasons that we discussed earlier. You, uh, you practice and teach mindfulness meditation and Zen Buddhism. You were, you're conducting classes in, in that for inmates in federal prison? Yeah. Um, uh, and was doing that until the pandemic, which struck the prisons hard and to shut them down to any visitors and I hope hope to restart. But that's certainly one of, you know, one of my um, joys. Um, I belong to the, the Dharma Bum uh, Buddhist temple and um, they have a prison outreach. And so um, myself, along with a very um, experienced Buddhist, I'm more of a a Western Buddhist, and we can talk about the differences. The two of us um, would go into the prison every week and we'd run a, a class on uh, uh, 
mindfulness meditation. We'd lead a meditation. Um, we talk a little bit about um, Buddhism and Buddhist sutra for people who are interested and, and had questions. Um, I took a class before starting this that um, was taught by a man um, named Fleet Mall. And uh, he's a, a Buddhist monk who um, spent, I think, 20 years in prison for um, dr drug crime and um, became ordained in prison, um, started the first hospice in prison, and he ran a course called The Path to Freedom, basically to, to help inmates with mindfulness, compassion, Buddhist principles. And so, you know, we try to incorporate some of that. I mean, certainly the goal of all of this is to um, ultimately decrease the recidivism, which is extremely high in our prison system. And in uh, Fleet Mall's experience, I mean, the recidivism goes from 70% uh, to less than 10% in some of the people um, who take his class formally. So, um, yeah, and then I, uh, I was asked just before the pandemic, just got started on the class called Houses of Healing, which incorporates some aspects of Buddhism, um, a lot of aspects of positive psychology, anger management, and those types of things. And I taught that class and hope to be able to continue to te teach that class. You had said earlier that Mindfulness meditation, along with exercise, were two of the primary um, practices that, that for good health. Ab ab absolutely. Is that, um, is that mostly kind of a mental health aspect with mindfulness? Absolutely. With with mindfulness, um, basically, um, I think we spend a lot of time worrying about the future which causes anxiety and thinking about the past which contributes to depression and not enough time being fully present with what we're doing or with the moment um and so you know the basic principles are to first of all through concentration learn how your mind works, learn how it jumps from things to things, how it gets distracted, how it spins off into different, different thought processes, and then recognize it and bring it back. So it's kind of an, you know, you're educating and exercising your mind to do what you want it to do, to be where you want it to be. And there's nothing wrong if you want it to be in the past and thinking about it. But most of the time, we want it to be here thinking about what we're doing, and it drifts off into a different, different location. And for a lot of people, and for most people, it can cause a lot of suffering. So, so that's kind of the, you know, the, um, the real short view of it. Um, Meditation is, is very, very complicated. There are a lot of, it, it's so simple and yet so, so difficult. Um, there are basically three major components or types of 
meditation that have been most studied and applied in the West. And the first is concentration, where you focus yourself intently on one thing, like the breath, or you focus on a mantra, you focus on sensations on your body, and with a non-judging attitude, you just observe these different things. Mm-hmm. So that and, and that and that's very powerful. It, it you can find it um, affecting you know parts of the brain like the amygdala that help memory. Um, there's another that often will progress into what John Kabat-Zinn, who's a clinical psychologist, said would be choiceless awareness. But there are different names for it in all Buddhist tradition, whether it's Chinese Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, but it's basically an open awareness of whatever comes in. So you're sitting, concentrating. If you hear a sound, you're aware of that sound, but you don't attach to it. If you hear, if you, there's a sensation in your body, you observe that, oh, you know, there's some tingling there. If there's a thought, you observe that thought. So the goal is that thoughts become nothing more than just another object in the field of awareness. And you don't have to jump onto them, create stories about them, and allow them to cause you any you know, psychological pain. And then the last that's been real studied well is um, you know, a, a loving kindness or compassion type of, of medication, where you basically wish yourself well you wish other people well and that also has a a powerful um benefit to you psychologically and they find changes in the limbic system with one and changes in the prefrontal cortex with the other so it's 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 you know it has the west is coming around to realizing how important it is and studying it with different PET scans and, and functional MRIs and EEGs, and they're finding, you know, pretty impressive um, improvements in people's, you know, mental health, memory, cognition using that. I was struck by how pertinent the compassion aspect is in today's world with all the division and the uh, just the acrimony that seems so present around us all the time. Absolutely. And, you know, the anger, which is developed in response and causes a lot of unhealthy things to occur, you know, in the body, Um, you know, adrenaline, cortisol, uh, elevated blood pressure, all of these different things. And so if you can transform that anger into more compassion. Um, it's a very healthy and healing thing for your body to do. It helps your immune system function better, um, helps your cardiovascular system function better. Well, what, uh, how did you discover Buddhism? Well, it, it's a, it kind of goes way back. Um, oh, I think, I, you know, I go back, uh, 30 year, no, no, well, maybe 20, 25 years ago. Um, uh, my wife and I were just married and six months into that, she developed breast cancer. And so we went through, we were going through a real difficult time 
and um, they were offering a class on what's called mindfulness meditation based on, on John Kabat-Zinn. And so we took this meditation class and I found it very helpful and continued to do meditation whenever I you know, could throughout my career. Um, you know, in the last five years, I was listening to this, um, this piece on NPR where they were talking about um, this author, Robert Wright, and he had just written a book on called Why Buddhism is Correct. And he was a clinical psychologist and basically analyzed uh, Buddhism. And so I thought, well, that's very interesting. And so took a lot of classes, did a lot of reading, um, and um, have kind of developed my own approach primarily to, to Buddhism as a psychology and philosophy, um, you know, more than a, a religion. Um, I think the first, the first thing we teach our, our prisoners is in the Buddhist classes, you don't substitute Buddha for, you know, Jesus or God or Muhammad. It's a totally, totally different thing. Buddha was just a guy. He was a really smart guy and figured out a lot of stuff about how the brain works. Um, and uh, through figuring out how the brain works, he was able to decrease his suffering and teach other people how to decrease their suffering. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a different um, kind of, kind of a, a, a different approach to, um, to spirituality. It's not really a religion at all, is it? No, it's it's interesting. It, in some countries, it's probably practiced as a religion, um, but in the West, where it's taken root, and if you go back to some of the Zen roots through China and Japan, um, no, it's more of a philosophy, a way of life, a way of treating people, a way of decreasing your unnecessary suffering. And by decreasing your unnecessary suffering, you don't make the people around you <laughs> suffer um, um, too. And so that's kind of kind of the, the type of Buddhism that that I um, you know practice and am involved in. And, and it's interesting, my you know co-teacher um, uh, who has much more experience in in and Buddhism for many, many years and as an active practitioner, we disagree on very little, um, even though he comes from a more traditional background and I come from a more medical scientific background. Um, there's usually very little disagreement, um, you know, in lively conversations in prison when, when, we're, all, when we're talking. So what, is, what does Buddhist practice look like in your daily life? Um, Great, great question. So you know, when I first get up in the morning, um, you know, I used to, you know, have the newspaper there and the internet on and everything. And I'd be eating breakfast at the same time that I'm, I'm reading and looking and doing all these different things. And now I get up and, you know, I make a, you know, my breakfast and I sit there and I enjoy my breakfast and I enjoy my tea. And I focus on the sensations and the and uh, the tastes. And if there's a sound, I'll focus on that, and then go back to my primary task, which is eating my breakfast. 
And sometimes I'll do like a little compassion um, uh, meditation when I'm eating my breakfast, thinking about, you know, there's somebody who had to pick this grain and somebody who had to manufacture it and somebody who had to take it to me and somebody who had to pick this, this strawberry and, um, you know, just have some compassion, appreciation for the interrelationships between everybody. I mean, to get that cereal, you depend on so many people. And then ultimately, you also depend on the soil and water and sun and everything. So um, often think about that. And then after, um, after breakfast, I usually um, sit down and do a formal um, uh, meditation, starting out with um, basically concentrating on breath, body sensations, sounds, and then go into more of a open awareness or choiceless awareness. If a person comes into mind, you know, even if it's somebody, you know, that I don't like or don't know, I try to send compassion to that person and then go back to, you know, um, open awareness. So I do that. Um, after that, I'll usually listen to just a brief teaching by Thich Nhat Hanh, who um, as a, a Zen Buddhist monk and a peace activist um, during the Vietnam era. And he recently passed away. And so I'll listen to a brief talk of, um, that, that he gives, um, maybe something about anger or life after death or, or what he talks about all sorts of different, different um, things. And so I'll, I'll listen to that. Then after that, I'll um, go and exercise. Um, usually I like to do Pilates or, you know, you know, uh, core strengthening exercises, or you know, I've got a little Peloton bike, but what I, I try to take that mindful state so that when I'm exercising, I'm fully present with my exercising. And, uh, you know, I'm aware of body sensations, my body position. It actually helps me, you know, technically perfect the, uh, um, the exercise. And again, my mind will wander. It'll start saying, well, what is the stock market doing? And, but I'm a little bit more aware of it and then bring it back. Nope. I got to be, you know, that's not important right now. The only thing that's important right now is that I'm trying to increase my, improve my strength and my balance so that I don't fall down, you know, as, <laughs> as I get older. Um, and then after that, I'll usually um, uh, practice um, my guitar for a while, um, trying to bring the same mindfulness to that. And I'd like to say that learning a musical instrument has been easy and I'm really good at it, but neither of those are true, but I, I, I keep, I keep foraging away and, uh, um, uh, it does give me some joy. And then I, um, practice some Spanish, um, because if you're looking at the two things that can, um, maintain your memory as we all get older, the two most the two strongest things are probably learning a musical instrument and learning a foreign language. Wow. So, and then, you know, then I've, you know, accomplished quite a bit regardless. Um, but I try throughout the rest of the day, regardless of what I'm doing as much as possible, trying to be 
present and try to be mindful and um, try to focus on, on what I'm doing, um, try to generate as much happiness and joy as I can from simple things. So I try to carry it throughout the day. I mean, there's obviously slippage and um, it's not something that, you know, I can, I still can maintain throughout the whole day because I've had a long life living another way, you know, what's next? What am I going to do next? Uh, You know, let me do three things at once. And so, um, so there's still a lot, a long way to go to get to where I want to be. Well, the broad scope of the awareness you describe is really stunning to me. It, it also sounds like the more you practice, obviously, the, the wider your awareness can grow. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I mean, awareness is really boundless. Um, and we're unaware of so many of the things that are going on in the very moment in our, our environment. Um, and it has tremendous benefits for the for the brain in terms of maintaining, you know, memory, making you a lot less reactive. Um, you know, in, in Buddhism, they talk about, you know, the three arrows. So the, the first arrow is somebody yells at you and says something bad to you and you react. And then there are multiple reactions that you have where well, maybe I am bad, you know, or I'm checking, you know, you question yourself and then well, I'm going to get back at this person because they did things. And so you're hurting yourself multiple times. So the first arrow, you don't have a lot of control over. You do have some control over um, as to how you react, um, but you have a lot more control over these multiple self-inflicted wounds that we subject ourselves through throughout the day. So just becoming more aware when you're doing that. Well, yes. And you know what, what strikes me about that is most things, if you're not aware, you have no choice in what you're going to, what you're going to, how you're either going to react or act, but awareness gives you the options. Now you can see that you have a a choice to do one thing or the other. Dan, you're, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That's an excellent point. And something that I've thought about a lot, you know, people, you know, there's that whole, aspect of do we have free will and is everything predestined and are you definitely going to react one way or the other and my answer is basically what you just said that if you are aware in the present moment and taking in all the data and acting you know on that rather than on what happened in the past and what i did in the past then you do have choices and you have choices to make better decisions. And it's one of the things that, you know, that, that we talk to, um, you know, our incarcerated people about is Mm. that when somebody says something to you, you react, you know, you react out of anger. Let's try and find a different way to act because kind of maybe the way you've reacted to this situation and that situation hasn't been the best, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't worked out really well. So let's just find alternative ways. So um, in the one class I was teaching, you would do some role playing. Well, what happens if a guard comes up to you and does this? 
how would you react? And, you know, we'd get in some small groups and we talk about, um, you know, well, how about if we take a couple of breaths first and center ourselves? How about if we don't react right away? How about if we walk away? I mean, I mean, different, you know, different options. And so those become viable options if you're mindful and aware. If you're on autopilot, they aren't. You just react the same way. Mm. So it is a way of increasing your free will. That's beautiful. Yeah. So you were a member of a healthcare mission to Honduras. That had to be a really powerful experience. It, it certainly certainly was. I you know I did one quite a lot. I mean, several years ago when my son was actually um, applying to to med school, and it was um, through the University of California at um, Berkeley, and um, you know we came in. We lived in kind of a you know a dormitory type setting. Um, there were a lot of, we brought in a bunch of medications that were donated uh, and uh, we would go into um, a schoolhouse with a dirt floor or whatever building they had and we'd bring all of our medications and vitamins and um, uh, people would just line up and we would see people until they, you know, until they... Um, uh, there were no more people to, to see. And for some people, it was the only way that they could get, you know, vitamins and medications and especially prenatal vitamins for women, you know, who would become pregnant. Um, and then I did another one um, just a couple of years ago and really had intended to keep going every year until COVID struck. Um, and, and this one, it, it was an established group combination of there were some um, LDS Mormons who were on a mission and and uh, a woman who is very devout Catholic that I, I worked with and I was Buddhist so we had Mormons Buddhists and Catholics <laughs> inter, interdenominational I guess that could be a joke you know what happens if the, you got a Mormon a Buddhist and a Catholic and go to a bar and, but anyways you have Mormon Buddhist and a Catholic going into uh, into uh, Honduras. And we lived, you know, with a family and it was just, you know, a bunch of volunteers and people slept on, slept on the floor and we'd get up early and get in these uh, four-wheel drive pickup trucks that the Ministry of Health there provided. And we drive to these tiny little villages out in the middle of nowhere. And um, for some of them, it was really their only access to health care. And they would come in with problems and we would try to help them with their problems. But we would also try to stock them up on things that, so if you, you know, if your child in the middle of the night gets an ear infection and you're 50 miles from the nearest hospital and you don't have a vehicle and there's no bus service, what are you going to do? So some of them we found it would come in and they would say, you know, my child has an earache. So we would give them a prescription for an antibiotic, knowing that that was for, you know, when they really did um, need it. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, it is a very, very powerful experience so that I had hoped to, to repeat, but um, COVID kind of put the kibosh on, on 
further um, further um, visits, at least at least for now. I suddenly would find myself thinking that your Buddhist practice probably helped there too, from the standpoint that I would imagine you see some things that are just absolutely heartbreaking. Ab- absolutely, absolutely, and um, you know, there's a practice called bearing witness to actually try to experience and be with that person and with that person's um, suffering. Um, you know, it's kind of beyond, you know, the typical empathy, but, but that's, that's a word that's often used. Um, and it is, you know, it was, was very helpful. Um, sometimes you feel overwhelmed, um, you know, with the suffering that's going on in Honduras I mean, these are just poor people trying to eke out a meager life in the face of drug cartels and violence and some of the just horrific things that go on um, down there. And so it does become overwhelming. And you do have to learn how to, you know, how to, you know, um, react in a healthy manner because it doesn't do you any good eat yourself up inside. So it's a practice that helps you maintain some equanimity. Absolutely. And there is actually a, an equanimity um, meditation. And most meditations do involve a certain amount of equanimity, trying not to be too reactive. Yeah. I was fortunate to see the Dalai Lama in person. Oh. He took... Uh, Questions at the end of his talk, one person asked him what the purpose of life is. To my surprise, he said, to be happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How would you describe your personal journey and purpose at this stage in life? Um, I think that, you know, the key is, um, you know, as Thich Nhat Hanh, if I could sum it up in one word, um, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, um, you are your actions and your actions are the ground that you stand on. So trying to make sure that my thoughts, speech, and actions um, in day-to-day living um, leave a positive effect on other people and on the world and not a negative effect. So if I could sum it up, that would be one way. Um, In terms of the Dalai Lama, I think if a person is happy, and suffering less, they're much more likely to be able to do that. People who are suffering and act in anger. So if you are happy, you're more likely to have positive thoughts, actions, and um, speech. Um, So I think the Dalai Lama got it right, too. But that's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah. My, uh, My mom was a nurse. Uh, my sister became a nurse. My sister's daughter became a uh, physician's assistant. So it seems to run in the, uh, in the family. But I think part of the reason that all happened was that we got to go into the office or the hospital and actually see mom in her uh, professional world. Did your uh, son see you in your professional world a lot? Absolutely. Both of them did. Um, both my son and my daughter um, you know, early on in, in practice, when 
you were on call, like if you were call, on call over the weekend and somebody would call and they'd say, you know, I cut myself or injured my wrist, you would get in the car and say, well, meet me at the clinic. I'll open up the clinic and we'll take a look. And so I would often bring my kids along and they would assist <laughs> at the in sewing somebody up or putting a cast on or listening to their heart and lungs or writing a prescription or whatever, whatever you would do. So, yeah, they kind of, kind of grew up with it. Um, my, my bathroom actually became the, uh, the neighborhood emergency room. And so if any, any of the kids or their adult parents would injure themselves, um, you know, we would sew them up or fix them up in the, in the bathroom and the kids would assist. And, um, you know, I remember one of the, one of the um, neighbor girls, dad was, you know, how dad's grab him by the arm and swing him around and around to try to, uh, you know, and the kids love it. Well, dad dislocated one of the little girl's elbows and mom was pissed. So they called me. So I, so I went down to the house and I relocated the elbow, which is a very simple thing to do um, and got dad off the hook. So just, and the kids would come with me on all these little expeditions. Did they both get into medicine as well? No, my, my, my daughter actually um, went into law and she's an attorney for, who specializes in not-for-profit law. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Well, this conversation has absolutely been a delight. Thank you so much, Wayne. Well, thank you for the opportunity, um, Dan. Um, and uh, look forward to seeing you again maybe another time here. I'm looking forward to that as well. Thanks. Few among us can remember when doctors made house calls. It's quite likely that some of our listeners don't know what a house call is. Times have changed and healthcare today often has an impersonal, almost corporate feel to it. Today's conversation with Dr. Wayne Anderson was for me a breath of fresh air. The story of his childhood is an adventure. His selfless dedication to a career in family practice made it easy to imagine him in another day and time being that kind caregiver who would have been making house calls. But make no mistake about it, he's not the traditional American doctor. He's much, much more. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Converser Studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken, Unsung.